Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome, welcome to it. Welcome to it. The Bible Geek. Uh, I'm your uh, host, Robert M. Price. Robert M. Price, host of the Bible Geek. of Israel, and of course this was a pseudomograph, uh, he didn't write it, there's the incarnation of God, why in the specific, just an amazing book, the Bible, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, host the Bible Geek, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, Christ, host the Bible Geek. Time for another Bible Geek with your host, Robert M. Price. And uh, before I get into the actual meat of the show, let me take the opportunity for a self-serving, shameless, uh, bald-faced plug uh, for a couple of my books. As you know, uh, Holy Fable Volume 3 is out and available on Amazon, and um, I, I... personally can't resist picking up a copy and uh, reading this and that gem in there. As with all of these Holy Fable books, I uh, guarantee you will find theories and the like uh, that you will never read elsewhere. Of course, many of these, the product of great uh, scholars, are R.H. Charles, Bruce J. Molina, many others, uh, but uh, also some some wacky theories of my own, and uh, you're definitely going to learn a lot of stuff about the Bible from this. I have in preparation uh, Holy Fable Volume 4, Modern Scriptures Undistorted by Faith, which will deal with the Book of Mormon, the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus Christ Superstar, the Aquarian Gospel, and um, uh, all kinds of nifty stuff. Also, uh, don't neglect uh, that collection of Paul Tillich essays uh, called The Ground of Being, Neglected Essays of Paul Tillich. That's also available on Amazon. And uh, I know this isn't quite in our bailiwick here. It might be closer to, to the uh, to a to propriety on the Lovecraft Geek, but my uh, Conan tribute, Temple of the Black One, continues to to sell, and you can find that on uh, on Amazon as well. So I hope you will. Uh, let's see here. Uh, let's, well, what the heck, let me just, uh, stop you from having to, uh, drum your fingers on the table waiting for the darn, uh, questions. Yeah, here's the, the first four today from our buddy Lachlan Cristiante. 
I was listening to your most recent podcast discussing the human-centric nature of the Bible and that uh, God and or the authors didn't seem too concerned about animal rights, and I completely bought the premise and the bit until I saw a video that discussed various Native American creation and destruction narratives. A narrative is a less pejorative, more politically correct term for a myth, of course. The video's creator was discussing how in these narratives, as well as in the Eden and Flood narratives, God's creation is near perfect until humans muck it up. I always thought the myth of animal innocence was a Victorian invention, as medieval Europeans would actually put animals on trial, and that a rather perfect world was a narrative of the late 20th century environmentalism movement. As a vampire, I see the world as Darwin did. Uh, uh, quote, what a book a devil's chaplain could write on the clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low, and horribly uh, horridly cruel works of nature, unquote. Humans are like other animals, simply more capable of making vast changes to their environment, as well as more capable of reflecting on those changes and perhaps controlling themselves. Was I wrong in assuming this was the pre-modern view? Is the idea of a perfect clockwork world where Mother Nature loves and nurtures all her children except for humans actually a very old concept? When I consider the lilies of the field, it seems that God does prefer non-human life forms and provides a habitat for everything except humanity. Uh, as per the foxes have holes line in Luke 9:58, which is further amplified by the power over the creeping things the adversary created, such as scorpions in Luke 10:19, which, by the way, the old geek um, takes as a vestige of Zoroastrianism. Anyhow, uh, I don't understand the powerful appeal. Oh, uh, by the way, let me just break in here, Lachlan, again. Uh, you quote that thing, the, uh, the uh, uh, where was that? Well, you know, in the, uh, the gospel saying, a Q saying in Matthew and Luke, that uh, foxes have holes uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, that is mankind, has no place to lay his head. Well, as we now read it, that seems to refer to Jesus as the Son of Man, but underlying it appears to be a proverbial aphorism that uh, we have no one natural habitat, that humans can be found every place, uh, whereas different animals have different uh, natural habitats. And um, the the wandering condition of, of the human race, that uh, seems to be drawing a line between uh, animals and humans. Any, anyway, uh, Lachlan says, I don't understand the powerful appeal. It's not just looking into the dead stone eyes of the trilobite, one of the lords of creation who was given dominion over the earth 521 million years ago at the start of the Cambrian, only to perish in the great dying. 
Well, to be fair, they weren't doing that well since the Devonian period about 419 million years ago. It's also the screams the squirrel made when my dog ate it. Nature is horrible and civilization allows animals such as its, uh, animals such as cows, pigs, sheep, and humans to live in comfort and safety. Why then the persistent mytheme of humans being the defective additions to an otherwise perfect world? Uh, Lachlan, have you ever seen, you probably have, the um, uh, the cartoon, oh man, what's the name of the... The thing I can't remember now, I'm sure I will when I don't need to, uh, where it's uh, the far side, yeah, uh, where uh, you have God there in the robe and the long beard. He's mixing up the world in a big uh, vat, and uh, he accidentally knocks over a beaker or a bottle or something on the shelf uh, into the mix of the world, and uh, the label on the bottle is humans and god says darn it uh and uh that that's you know and the romans says that the whole creation was subject to futility because of uh of the fall of adam and uh, that everything would have been hunky dory right and that fits in with the uh, notion in uh, the uh, priestly creation account that uh, originally humans and animals alike were to subsist on vegetation. Uh, and uh, that's also implied in the uh, Garden of Eden creation story, where at first uh, Adam and Eve are where, well, they make for themselves uh, aprons, loincloths of uh, fig leaves sewn together somehow. Uh, and uh, and then there, then God replaces them with animal skins, which kind of implies that, okay, now animals have to watch their back. Uh, from humans anyway, and uh, in the priestly narrative, back to that one, if all the animals just ate plants, that means they didn't eat each other either, right? And uh, when does that change? Well, after the flood, when God tells them, you remember uh, back in a couple of chapters ago where I said that you could eat every green thing, etc.? Well, now you can eat animals, just don't drink the blood. Uh, so what has happened there? Uh, the victimization of animals is a result of, uh, or it follows the, the fall, uh, but uh, it is a little strange that in the aftermath of the flood, it's open season on meat, since presumably the judgment on the world, on mankind, for depravity has just been uh, accomplished. Uh, they're making a new start, and, and that includes eating animals. So that's a little bit odd, but you do have this uh, notion in the Bible that one that way back in the past, animals and humans lived side by side. And in Isaiah, you have a prophecy that one day it'll be that way again. The lion and the lamb will be lying down playing checkers together and stuff like that, uh, that infants, uh, a, a baby can 
put his hand over the the uh, mouth of a snake uh, den and not be hurt and and so forth, so that all of that uh, all these violent things will be redeemed and saved. Uh, but um, I uh, I'm. It's always a question then of what did the myth mean? It's kind of like the golden age myth that many cultures have, that uh, things have gone wrong. You're comparing the the ideal standard, the way you wish it could be, and you you say to yourself that, well, that must be the way it was. And it seems to me that is, uh, you know, there's no way you could know that was true in the past. Uh, so it isn't really a memory of the way things were, and the same thing with the animals here. Uh, you're just you just have a conscience that says it shouldn't be this way, uh, and uh, and the the animals who are suffering it shouldn't be that way. Nature is red in tooth and claw, but. Maybe it wouldn't have to be, or at least I wish it weren't so. I think that's what's going on, a kind of a Kantian demythologizing of this. Um, uh, So there is a kind of residual guilt that we're responsible uh, for for this, but I think that's just a, a a comment on the sensitivity of consciousness, saying it. Wish I wish it weren't like this. But as Tony Soprano used to say, "What are you going to do?" Uh, one exception to well, no, no, it's not an exception. Uh, it's uh, actually it's consistent with this Deuteronomy, which comes from uh, the. Uh, the uh, prophetic schools of uh, Judah has this sense of fair play for animals. Uh, You mustn't muzzle the ox while it's uh, treading out the grain. Uh, Give it a share of of the proceeds. Of course, I'm guessing they did that because they didn't want ox saliva getting into your bread. But uh, at any rate, there is a a sense of that uh, and a guilt that is perhaps not deserved but is... uh, uh, the uh, the result of of a sense of regret. It's it's too bad. It's this way. But they, if you want pepperoni pizza, goodbye pigs. Anyhow, Ken Bradley and. Uh, Winchester, Kentucky, that I enjoyed your recent Patreon article about the Spirit, and it got me wondering about baptism by water. Jesus never baptized anyone with water, so how did this become a staple of the Christian church, especially the Baptists? John the Baptizer obviously was using water, but if Jesus was baptizing with the Holy Spirit, shouldn't all denominations embrace glossolalia, being slain in the Spirit, prophecy and healing well um we uh don't know if that's what baptism in the spirit is supposed to mean in that uh, q saying i think it is uh, where uh, uh john the baptist is made to say i baptize you with water but the the coming one will baptize in in the holy spirit and fire uh, we don't know that that, uh, that implies the spiritual manifestations of 1 Corinthians uh, 12 through 14. It might, but it seems closer 
in terms of the context to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which use the same metaphor. It, it warns that when God intervenes to kick out the pagans and all that, uh, he is going to uh, unleash wind and fire in judgment. And uh, that seems to be what John the Baptist is getting at. Uh, it's it's a, a judgment, unless, of course, as Bultmann says, and Bultmann said it, I believe that that settles it, um, that, uh, no, this is already a Christianization of John the Baptist and does intend something like 1 Corinthians uh 12 through 14. Uh, I don't know, you know, which, uh, I, I'm the donkey here, and I don't know which haystack to go for in that case. Uh, but um, there are a couple of denominations that did make the connection, I think you're implying, that it, given this contrast, which seems to denigrate water baptism as just a kind of a charade anticipating the real baptism of the Spirit, Shouldn't you drop the the water baptizing, just like um, the thing with fasting? Uh, why do the uh, Pharisees fast and John the Baptist's uh, followers fast, but your disciples don't? Uh, well, the uh, answer is it's uh, that's outmoded. Uh, that was a penitential rite to help bring about the kingdom, which is now just about here. So, you know, if you keep... Uh, preparing for something and you never stop if it comes you're not going to notice and you're not going to be a part of it well now who who uh, set this aside the uh the kimbanguist church in uh congo uh how do you uh, the, the big Congo, the former Belgian Congo that was also known as Zaire, right? Congo, Kinshasa. Uh, he, uh, Simon Kimbangu was a uh, big prophet there and, uh, and uh, definitely a Christian, though. Uh, and uh, his church uh, did make this connection. They said, okay, we're not baptizing in water. We're uh, enjoying spirit baptism. They see the, the uh, implication of that text I believe the Quakers and the Salvation Army also uh, dispense with water baptism. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's true about the Quakers. I, I'm nearly certain it's true of the Salvation Army, but if you know better, please please tell me. My uh, faculties, of course, are rapidly eroding from senility. Um, so, yeah, uh, why uh, don't they do that? Well, where did continued water baptism uh, enter into the Christian tradition. Well, uh, it uh, it may simply have come over from the influence of the mystery religions. They needed some initiatory rite, and there were certainly Christian ways of explaining it. You're being baptized into your identification with the Savior, and therefore you're sharing his death and resurrection. That's common mystery religion conceptuality, and you certainly find that in Romans and 1 Corinthians. But you you might theorize that it was part of a compromise between the early Christians and the Baptist sectarians, because in Luke and John, there's definitely a discernible uh, attempt to recruit John the Baptist followers, uh, and that is over against 
the competition between the two that we see uh, implied in Luke and John and very explicitly in the uh, Clementine uh, novels, where you actually have a debate between the different Jewish groups, including the Jerusalem Christians and um, and the Baptist sectarians who say that John was the Messiah, etc. Well, uh, if you did have a uh, an influx at some point of John the Baptist sect to early Christianity, it could be that they said, okay, we're, we'll continue your right, R-I-T-E, of water baptism. And um, I wouldn't be too surprised if that's what happened. But you never know, because there were also other Jordan River area um, Jewish Gnostic groups like the Mandeans and the Docythians and all that. So there's like an embarrassment of riches. It's like in a way we don't know enough, in another way we know too much to come up with definite judgment there. It is a fascinating question. Okay, James Washington. I know you're not an expert in Islam, but I still want to know your opinion on the origins of Islam. What do you make of the fact that there's zero evidence that the Arab conquerors of the 7th century were Muslims? Not only did they not refer to themselves as Muslims, but the people they conquered did not refer to them as Muslims. Don't you find that? weird. If one of the goals of the 7th century Arab conquerors was to spread the teachings of Muhammad, how come there is actually no evidence of the 7th century Arab conquerors introducing a new religion to the people they conquered? I personally am convinced that the 7th century Arab conquerors were most likely a nominal Syriac Christian sect, a sect that had a lot in common with the Ebionites. Uh, yeah, James the Just. <clears throat> um, there is certainly reason for that. Uh, let me recommend a book that may be pretty tough to find now uh, by uh, Patricia Crone, C-R-O-N-E, and, um, um, oh boy, Michael, oh my gosh, I just recommended this book to somebody. Oh, maybe I'll think of it in a minute again. Oh, boy. Uh, called Hagarism. Uh, what, what does that mean? Well, it's this immensely fascinating examination of the actually kind of numerous t- uh, notices about this early Arab conquest and the conquerors and what they called themselves and what they believed and how they changed their beliefs. And uh, they were originally called Hagarists, and it had to do not with Hagar, the concubine of Abraham, not yet anyway. I mean, it was reinterpreted in that way but referred to the Hegira, uh, the uh, the flight which um, it was, uh, was, quote, originally the story of Muhammad fleeing Mecca to escape uh, his would-be assassins and going to Medina, which became his power base and base of operations. And uh, so this this flight, uh, probably originally, without the quote marks, had to do with the um, movement of an alliance of Jews and Arabs to free Jerusalem, uh, I guess what, from the Byzantine Empire, 
and it was led by a, a messiah an Arabic one, and there is evidence that some Jews believe that the Messiah would be an Arab, amazingly, uh, called um, uh, Umar al-Farouk. Now, his name survives as uh, one of the caliphs right after Muhammad, uh, and uh, there was Abu Bakr, uh, Umar, and Uthman. Well, al-Farouk means the redeemer, and according to uh, yeah, uh, Michael Cook is the other author, Crone and Cook, Hagarism. Uh, th- this guy was uh, the Messiah, and if anything, Muhammad had the role of a kind of a John the Baptist preparing the way. And they they did. He was going to rebuild the temple, uh, Umar. And that didn't happen, but they did wrest uh, Jerusalem from the hands of uh, its occupiers. And then began the... Um, the process of trying to create a uniquely Arabic religious identity to triangulate away from both, well, not both, you got three things, uh, from Christianity, Rabbinic Judaism, and Samaritanism, all three of which left uh, their marks on emergent Islam. Um, there, there was an attempt to Judaize this uh, this messianic movement uh, to say that uh, that Muhammad was the great lawgiver, a new Moses, which is, uh, I think, why you have Muhammad operating from a place called Medina. I think that rep- that somehow represents. Uh, Midian, uh, where Moses lived for 40 years. Uh, that's why you have um, the same city called Yathrib. I think that uh, mirrors Yithro or Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, and uh, some other stuff like that. Uh, and Muhammad is uh, credited with all kinds of dry and pedantic uh, rules and laws in the longer surahs of the Quran. Uh, then you you had an attempt to uh, Christianize it. We're told that uh, the early uh, Arab conquerors of Jerusalem bowed, or one of the first kings bowed at the cross like a good Christian. But of course, Muslims came to believe Jesus was not crucified, but was, but he ascended to heaven before they could nail him up. And uh, so was somebody else that uh, the Gnostic motif of docetism that uh, somebody else was crucified in his place, made to look like him supernaturally. And uh, so they began to uh, they began Christianizing, but then swerved away from that. The idea of Islam, submission, uh, that seems to be a motif taken from Samaritanism. And there were uh, more, uh, there's more evidence of this, but they at first... Um, practiced sacrifice, but uh, eventually dropped that. And so you you have evidence of a morphing, changing religion, uh, just as is true with, uh, you know, all the other religions. And um, uh, there's all sorts of interesting stuff. You mentioned Syriac Christianity. According to Gunter Luling, who uh, 
I was privileged to uh, be associated with. Uh, I never met him personally, but he was he was a friend, a brilliant uh, scholar of Islamic origins. He demonstrated that, to my satisfaction, that as much of as much as a third of the Quran was originally based on Arab Christian uh, hymnody, uh, and uh, so that uh, and, and that there's even reason to think that uh, the Kaaba, the the great shrine in Mecca, was a Christian church. That's a little sketchier, but uh, there's some reason to think that. And uh, then others have shown. Well, anyway, that, that's enough to to get into that. But uh, yeah, the uh, the we uh, can surmise quite a bit about Islamic origins that does not match the official story. For instance, crucial to that story is that Mecca was the great pilgrimage center and a great uh, center of commerce, and that Muhammad preaching the new faith of Islam there. Uh, would have led to the shutting down of all the religious tourist traps there, and that's why they persecuted him. Sorry, archaeology indicates that that Mecca was just like a gas pump in the middle of nowhere. It was there was no thriving center, so it's like Quranic minimalism, I guess you could say. So if you can get a hold of uh, of Crone and Cook's book. Um, Hagarism, uh, you you would I'm sure find a, you know a lot of major revelations. There's another great book published by Prometheus, edited and translated by Ibn Warrick, W A R R A Q, uh, called uh, the Quest of the Historical Muhammad or for the Historical Muhammad, and another one about Quranic origins where he takes all kinds of groundbreaking essays um, of a newly critical study of Islamic origins and translates them. Just great, great stuff. Uh, and uh, so I think you're right on the, the, the correct track. And and it certainly did have connections, I think, with Jewish Christianity. Uh, another interesting book about that would be Mohammed, spelled differently, M-O-H-A-M-M-E-D, uh, Mohammed, the Man and His Faith, by Tor Andrei, A-N-D-R-A-E. That that kind of assumes a more traditional view of Islamic origins, but even at that, shows fascinating connections with uh, the doctrinal heritage of the Ebionites, the Elkasites, and the Manichaeans, and so on. Islamic origins are just incredibly fascinating, and they begin to throw new light on uh, on uh, Christianity in the New Testament, as I've tried to show in different writings. So, uh, keep going, James the Just, uh, Washington. You yeah. keep Mm, who's up next? Let me scroll down here. Uh, this is uh, Micah from Australia. You know, I got to get that, uh, got to get the attribution right, especially if there's a language request, or even if it's not a request, I can always 
defame and insult the questioner by doing such a bad job with an accent. And as you know, when I do all these accents, I'm uh, as ridiculous as they may sound. Uh, the attempt is not to ridicule anybody. It's just that I love accents. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, we're about to send our children to a local Lutheran school. While we're sending them there for purely non-religious reasons, it has excellent reviews on its curriculum, care for students, student programs for sport, music, and art, etc. And the school is welcoming of all or no faiths. So I realized that I knew nothing about Martin Luther or the Lutherans, apart from the basic idea that he had a problem with the Catholic Church and caused the Reformation. So I started listening to a book by Alistair E. McGrath entitled Luther's Theology of the Cross, Martin Luther's Theological Breakthrough. I don't know why I chose it other than it, it was available on Audible so I could listen to it at work. Um, well, the guy's a prominent church historian. Uh, my wife seemingly was thinking a similar way as she told me she's listening to a book entitled Martin Luther, the man who rediscovered God and changed the world by Eric uh, Metaxas. Interesting name. Uh, we both are enjoying our respective books. Do you have any thoughts on either book? Never read them. Uh, do you have any suggestions on books that you could recommend on Martin Luther or the Lutherans in general? Hmm, boy. Uh, I don't know. There's, who wrote Here I Stand? Uh, darn. Well, you could just read... Uh, one of Luther's books, uh, The Bondage of the Will, which is clear and fascinating and goes into his doctrines of faith, grace, and all that stuff. Um, and uh, But I have to admit, I, there are various recent biographies of Luther. I think there's... Uh, is it Eric Erickson, young man Luther? I, I think he misinterprets Luther and what he meant by... Uh, salvation by faith and all that but uh gee you know i i'm not sure i'm certainly not an expert on that uh my old buddy ed swominen who co-authored uh, our book um evolving out of eden uh, with me uh, he would know this guy learned german to be able to read luther and read the whole of luther's uh, works uh He'd be good to ask. He used to have a blog up. I think he's taken it down, though. He's still in mourning that Donald Trump was elected, and uh, that somehow led to his seclusion. Uh, anyway, um, my second question is about Neoplatonism. I came across this quote from the New World Encyclopedia. Non-Christian religions tend to be less concerned about orthodoxy versus heterodoxy than the Christian tradition has been. This is largely due to the history of Christianity defining itself in the context of Neoplatonism, um, a Neoplatonic philosophy as a religion of truth, particularly regarding such questions as the nature of Jesus, the true definition of the Trinity, and the means by which salvation may be attained. Firstly, is the contention that Christianity defined itself in the context of Neoplatonism uh, uh, and Neoplatonic philosophy as a religion of truth. Is that a fair contention? 
if so, what what exactly does that mean? As in, what is Neoplatonism, and how is it connected to Christianity? When a believer says that they have the truth, did I mean truth in a Neoplatonic way? Um, if the contention that Christianity defined itself in the context of Neoplatonism is a fair contention, how would you go about explaining that possibility to a believer who contends that their definition of truth is derived from the Bible? Uh, Rudolf Bultmann, uh, who I always quote, in fact, I'm looking at his framed picture on the side of a bookcase right now. Um, he's right below F.C. Bauer and right above Clark Pennock on the wall there. Anyway, um, Bultmann said in his uh, terrific little book, Jesus Christ and Mythology, he says that uh, people claim they're just accepting the biblical revelation and not philosophy, and uh, he says that it's just, they don't know what they're saying because every notion of revelation presupposes a philosophy that has defined it. Uh, and uh, there are plenty of different ways of looking at it. Oh boy, a book I just love, David Kelsey's book. Uh, um, the, oh, wait a minute, I'm confusing the, uh, uh, the, uh, the uses of, Scripture in Modern Theology, I think it is. Uh, this came out, though, back in the 70s. Uh, terrific book. He he shows, like, ni- I think nine different ways in which the Bible functions as an authority for different kinds of theology, which pretty much <laughs> makes Bultmann's view undeniable. I mean, you're, you're starting out by deciding what you mean by revelation before you start claiming you've got a revelation. Uh, it's pretty important, the distinction. What was Neoplatonism? Well, uh, it was uh, the the work of Plotinus, I believe, in the second century uh, A.D. or C.E. He was. It was sort of a mystical version of Platonism. Uh, somebody stop me before I go on and on with this. Uh, Plato believed that uh, that behind all material objects was a world of a transcendent realm of purely rational forms or ideas or ideals, take your pick, um, prototypes that were but imperfectly and fleetingly embodied again and again in the world of matter. Why imperfectly and fleetingly? Well, because matter is inherently unstable. It shifts and changes. It decays and so forth. So you, uh, whatever material objects you have, they, uh, they eventually wear out, don't they? The chair collapses underneath you. You wind up having to reboot your cable box once or twice a day, like in our house. Uh, your car breaks down, your body breaks down, uh, you got the old aches and, and your joints and you start losing your hearing and your eyesight, or in my case, your sanity. And, uh, why is that? Well, it just can't can't hold together for all that long, uh, but um, there there are. But it's not arbitrary. There are loads of different um, 
heavenly or rational forms that are always being or uh, fa- being made the basis for material objects. Now, how do they wind up being reflected? And uh, you know, how come new babies are born to embody the form of human being? Well, that's where the Demiurge comes in, a character who really came into his own in Gnosticism, a subordinate being lower than the gods who couldn't be bothered with such such trivia. But the Demiurge fashions in some way the, uh, the, the matter into temporary imperfect conformity with the forms. The forms are eternal. If you broke every chair in the world, it would still be possible to make new ones. Well, obviously, but why? Because the form of chair survives. Even if centuries went by without anybody making a chair, somebody could invent it again because they would have become aware of the eternal form of chairness. Uh, the, the forms can be numbers, geometric shapes, colors, uh, so forth, uh, and there are a hierarchy of them. Uh, there, uh, there are uh, specific ones, like there's male and female human beings, but you know that both men and women are human because they both embody, even in the realm of forms, a higher form of human being. Uh, And then uh, you can go up the ladder, the great chain of being to life forms and and so on and so on. And the ultimate form is the form of the good, which uh, anchors the reality of all things, including the personal gods of Greek religion. They're lower uh, than than the ultimate. So this is a kind of a reach toward monotheism. Well, Plato saw that there are at least four levels of of uh, cognition, uh, and I'm not sure if I can get these right right off the top of my head. Uh, Price, don't you prepare for these things? No, nah, not really. Um, the, there is ignorant opinion. Uh, people that read supermarket tabloids or listen to certain channels, you fill in the blank, um, they, they operate on distorted uh, pictures of, of the world. A great book on this would be Jacques Ellul, Propaganda, a fascinating and dismaying volume. Uh, then there are uh, beliefs, uh, forget the usual translations of these things, where, uh, okay, you're not a delusional fool, uh, but you're you're still just uh, inductively examining the world, and you might or might not be close to the truth. At least it's not hopeless delusion and, and so on. Uh, then above that, uh, you... Uh, and you you begin to perceive the 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 realm of forms, and then there's a kind of an ultimate enlightenment where you uh, reach the form of the good. He spoke almost as if this would be a a, a mystical Hindu Buddhist type of enlightenment, and some people interpret him that way. Many don't, and think it's purely cognitive. Because, for instance, the importance of mathematics in education, Plato admitted, though school teachers today will not. Uh, it was not 
knowing handy mathematical gimmicks to figure up how much of a tip to leave and stuff like that. It was to train the mind to think beyond sense perception and to reason abstractly because that was necessary if you were ever going to perceive the form of the good. And then once you did, it was a kind of a conversion, you know, Plato's cave allegory, uh, where uh, we picture a great cavern with people chained to the the ground, uh, witnessing uh, uh, a shadow play on the cave wall in front of them, Uh, the the shadows that seem to have human form and whatever are... uh, cardboard cutouts carried by people along a balcony behind them uh, and uh, uh, with uh, shadows cast by a great fire. And uh, as far as they know, the the cave dwellers, this is all there is to reality. Uh, uh, But suppose one day some guy managed to break the chains and look at the whole picture, 360 degrees, and says, what the hell? Uh, And he sees uh, a light at the end of a tunnel and makes makes a break for it and goes out onto the surface world, which he didn't even know existed. And uh, everything's bright and in color and three-dimensional. And eventually his eyes get uh, accustomed to light and he looks up and sees the sun. Uh, And eventually he says, I can't keep this to myself. I got to go back down there and tell everybody that they're not. So what they think is reality is just a sham. Uh, Surely they will welcome the opportunity. To, to do what I've done here. Well, he does go back down there, but nobody wants to hear it. Uh, you crazy. Get out of here. Uh, well, okay, I tried my best. And he says, that's the role of the philosopher who has freed himself uh, or herself from the, uh, the, the illusions, the delusions uh, of uh, common everyday sense perception and has seen the, the form of the good. Uh, and uh, a lot of people just aren't going to want to hear that that or won't understand it. The guy might even get crucified for trying to set everybody straight. Anyway, um, that was, uh, boy, is that a scandalously oversimplified version of, of this. Well, Plotinus, well, there was also Middle Platonism. Philo was a Jewish philosopher who was a Middle Platonist. Um, and uh, he he had this fascinating thing that I think was taken up without mediation into the Gospel of John about the Logos, the divine mind that uh, projected itself as a prototype for the creation. And there were several stages of the Logos. Uh, that really uh, is so much like the Gospel of John, where the Logos is the intermediary of creation, and this Logos was known as the heavenly Adam and the Son of God and stuff like that. Uh, anyway, uh, Neoplatonism was the latest form of it, and Plotinus definitely did interpret Plato in a mystical way, but he had a cosmogony, a, a creation uh, account that for our purposes is important here. He believed that ultimately there was just a singularity. There was just oneness. I mean, this really sounds like Hinduism, like non-dualism. But you, you, you have to think of reality as a great fountain with several levels. I know you've seen stuff like this in uh, beautiful Italian architecture and stuff where they're like concentric um, as you go down, bigger and bigger shells of, of 
concrete or marble or whatever, the water comes out the very top and splashes down into the first smallest uh, receptacle, overflows and goes into the next one. After a while, that overflows and goes into the next one and so on down the line, right? Well, he said that's the way reality is. At the top, the fountain of all being is the one, but it uh, immediately begins to be um, defined, uh, it multiplies uh, into duality uh, with uh, uh, good and evil, light and darkness and all that, just like in the uh, in the priestly creation account where there's, there's at first just the Tahome, the great ocean of being, and then from it come these dualities, light and darkness, wet and dry, etc., etc. Same thing here. And uh, the further down you go, the more division you have, the more multiplicity in the world. And um, let's see. And so, in in the mysticism of Platonism, Neoplatonism, you're attempting to. Uh, go back up in in your mind to experience the the oneness to get beyond all uh, distinctions. Uh, let's see. Plotinus knew about Gnosticism, and in fact, Origen and Valentinus, I believe, were both s- students of his. Uh, and uh, he th- he disagreed with Gnosticism because Gnosticism said matter was inherently evil. Plato hadn't said that, right? It was more like it was Plato. Forgive the irresistible pun. Uh, it it was unstable because it wasn't eternal, rational substance or anything. I mean, what else could it be? It's not going to last forever, right? Uh, and but it wasn't evil. And yet, the temptation of the flesh, uh, which of course you know is matter creates evil. We give into it. We we start slumming and wallowing in matter. We have to uh, really exert our will to get aboard the flying chariot to head on uh, higher and higher. Uh, So it's the occasion for evil. But Gnosticism said matter is evil. And Plotinus couldn't buy that, though he did have the interestingly similar view that that um, that raw prime matter was evil. I think you see a great depiction of this in Arthur Mackin's uh, book uh, or novella, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, the. Uh, the the great god Pan, uh, in which people are led to see the ultimate chaos that lies at the center of things and are just suicidally despondent afterward. Very very powerful stuff. That Mackin, amazing. Um, uh, let's see now. Uh, so uh, Neoplatonism is well the whole platonic thing really uh, he is is integral to christianity as it uh, developed into orthodoxy right because the notion that there is an ultimate god who th- through a logos emitted from himself somehow uh, has created the world uh, and and that uh, that uh, logos 
was reflected in an earthly Adam whose progeny represented a burgeoning multiplicity which occasioned envy, contention, strife, and warfare. Yeah, that is very similar. If, if you didn't have that thing, especially the, the Logos mediator business, you just wouldn't have uh, Christianity as we have it today. You, you'd probably have something like the Ebionites, but you wouldn't have Gnosticism or Orthodoxy, which I view as a kind of a kid version of uh, Gnosticism. Uh, and uh, that... Uh, like the notion of the Trinity, for instance, the idea that the, the divine one has somehow been differentiated into three. Well, boy, that does sound Neoplatonic and the mediatorial role of the Logos and so on. So, yeah, I, I guess so you could say that. The big picture here, though, is that Greek philosophy became the way to understand biblical myth. They're simply, like Paul Tillich says, the Bible raises various ontological questions that it does not even attempt to answer because that's not the game those writers were playing. Um, and, and, but they do demand, uh, philosophical answers if that's the way you're thinking. And so the Western tradition did that. And I think when they did, they, um, they really, uh, like Cleopatra, brought the asp to their own breast uh, because uh, it, uh, though though they were sh slow in seeing the implications, and most people never have. Once they did that, they they undermined and destroyed the personalism of of biblical belief. I almost said biblical theology. I'm not even sure that's the right word for it. The idea that there is an angry Jehovah who has, uh, like the medieval popes, uh, called on the faithful to have crusades against the infidels and stuff, uh, who demands to be worshipped as if he were some tin god dictator, uh, and uh, who sent his son to die to pay for the sins of humanity and all this, as Bultmann said, surely this is primitive mythology, uh, and, and to start rationalizing it by coming up with something that has the same general shape like Platonism you're uh, really ultimately going to destroy the personalism, the objectifying language of it. Uh, a god who is just like a superhero. He intervenes in our affairs, but as if he were one of us, because in a sense, he really is. Even the supreme being is a being, no longer being itself. And uh, finally, I think the biblical mythology just is allegorized away into a drifting vapor that dissipates if you watch closely. Now, what does that have to do with orthodoxy and heresy? 
I don't think it is at all correct to say that Christianity goes in for heresy hunting more than other religions. I mean, in Islam, you had the Karajite movement, which said that any sin was like a was a damning sin, and there were wars over this kind of thing, and there were sectarian disputes, Sunni versus uh, Shia, and then the Shiites split into the Fivers, the Seveners, the Twelvers, and and these guys weren't nice and diplomatic about it. Uh, in Buddhism, there are loads of different groups, the Pure Land, Nichiren, uh, Mahayana, Vajrayana, Theravada, etc., etc., uh, maybe the Confucians don't have disputes, I don't know, but uh, Hinduism, where, whereas they get along with each other, and that's really the thing we want to see, they have six different, very different schools of Hindu thought that are all considered orthodox, because they all uh, are based on the Vedas in one way or another. Uh, and, uh, and the Buddha, he, uh, we're told, had debates with uh, the Ajivika sect and others, and he would call his debating opponents eel wrigglers, like you know, spin doctors, but they didn't go around killing each other. I mean, for all we know, they just had friendly debates like the rabbis did. So uh, the the notion of uh, Christianity being more open to uh, nitpicking, heresy hunting, and uh, doctrinal schism, uh, that I think is is just wrong. It's uh, a habit of mind that some people have that Christianity has to be the villain. Uh, and uh, that's uh, just uh, you no know, more so than other religions. Um, okay, thanks, Micah. Okay, hello, Bible Geek Acapulco J here. Uh, do you have a farmer's accent to use on this question? Well, maybe. I uh, heard today, uh, May 7th, uh, the podcast with the advice on pruning of vineyards and the like. This reminded me of a peach tree we had 30 years ago. Uh, my paternal grandparents, rest in peace, had a peach tree. I had a... Uh, uh, great uncle who had a peach orchard. Sheesh. I remember going there once as a little kid. Not that I would have eaten one of them. It is fruit, after all. Anyway, uh, they lived right on the southern shore of Lake Michigan. Uh, the peach, probably got the wrong accent here, but uh, the peach tree was fully grown but had never given any fruit. The next-door neighbor said he could make it give fruit, but he would have to punish the tree. We looked at him and said to ourselves, here's another ignoramus, and he's out of his mind. But there's no harm in letting him try, as the tree never gave fruit in six years of maturity. Now, let me explain that Ricardo was in America to get a better life, and he grew up in a dirt-poor farm town in the state of... state of... Uh, Mikoikan? Uh, he may have been a poor, uneducated farmer, but he knew better than we did about the peach tree. In the part of Mexico where Ricardo was born, there are still those who believe in their hearts that rats grow old and turn into bats. Well, that's a new one on me. Uh, this is still a belief and an ancient belief at that. 
fascinating. It's sort of like you become an angel and get wings, I guess. Ricardo brought out a sledgehammer and commenced to beat on the trunk of the peach tree. While he beat on it, he cursed the tree. He told the tree it was no good, that it was lazy, and it should be giving fruit. He was really wailing on the tree trunk, but not enough to knock the bark off. Sound familiar to Jesus and the fig tree? The next season, we picked over 300 peaches from that tree. Every season after, it gave hundreds of peaches, big juicy peaches that were all tasty and sweet. Could it be that this beating and berating was the push the tree needed to give fruit? And was this Jesus' intent with the fig tree that did not bear fruit, to curse it for having no fruit and to shock it to give fruit? The next season for the fig tree, had Jesus been crucified by then, uh, the next season for the fig tree, had Jesus been crucified by then. I think I'm missing something here. So we will never know if it gave fruit. Thank you for reminding me of the story of my grandparents. May they rest in peace. Um, uh, Jesus ends that little tirade saying, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, you bastard. Uh, so um, th there, uh, if this was originally about that, some the storyteller has forgotten it, but that's fascinating. Fascinating. It's possible. I mean, you can you can point out Old Testament stories that are based on folk customs or beliefs that have been historicized and made into a miracle. Could be, for all I know. Fascinating. You know, good tree. Yeah, boy, that's great. Ooh, let's see the. Oh, wait a minute. Who who we got here? Uh, Tim Curran, he's a good Bible geek listener from long back. Christian apologists make a big deal about the book of Daniel and the prophecies therein, especially the prophecies concerning the advance of the Greek Empire, you know, the Seleucid Syrians. Can you shed some light on the dating of the book of Daniel and what we can determine whether these predictions of the future, whether these are, sorry, predictions of the future or reflections on the past. I'm sorry, this is Tyler Williams. Sorry, Tyler, didn't mean to give your question to somebody else. Uh, yeah, the uh, there's all sorts of problems with wanting to take the narrative framework of Daniel seriously. Half the book of Daniel is a bunch of stories about uh, Daniel, uh, a Jewish exile in Babylon, uh, shortly after 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar stomped the place and so on. He and his buddies, uh, given the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I can never remember the, uh, the Hebrew names, but those were the, the names they were given uh, by their captors. They were, um, like the, the Babylonians weren't nasty to their, uh, their uh, what would you call them, um, emigres i mean they were forced to move there but they they uh but they got jews got along so well that uh that many of them their descendants never wanted to leave and didn't um and and these guys they, these four were uh in an elite group who were there they could see their potential and were raising them to join the government of Babylon. And uh, 
and and that this raises interesting questions like how do these guys maintain their their Jewish identity and uh, and not uh, just chuck it and go for the Babylonian religion? You, you can I mean this is this challenge is perfectly summed up in the name Abednego uh, that one of these Jewish guys was given because Abednego means servant that is worshipper of Nergal uh, and uh, so if you're given that name, like at Ellis Island, right? Sometime they couldn't understand the exotic sounding last name and said, okay, we're calling you Smith from now on. Um, if you're named that, uh, you got a challenge not to assimilate. And so there's stories about that. And the point of that is it's to encourage young diaspora Jews not to assimilate, to stick to Jewish ways. And believe it or not, that will take you far because our ways are, are more wholesome. Uh, you will succeed and non-Jews will see it and you'll be a good testimony uh, to your faith and you will succeed. Uh, going along with for the ride is not the way to succeed. You'll just be lost in the mass. And uh, an important point. Uh, okay, so, um, and and uh, there are other, uh, Joseph in Egypt is another one like that. Uh, and uh, Esther, again, that's the, they're aimed at young diaspora Jews. You see, they did this. They kept faithful to our tradition, and that was the way of success. So, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, but uh, there's all kinds of problems. The writer was apparently writing so long after this time that he had his facts muddled. He thinks that Belshazzar was the immediate successor of uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't. Uh, he uh, there were other ones in there. He confuses Nebuchadnezzar with Nabonidus, a different uh, Babylonian emperor. Uh, originally, the story of the king going insane and uh, living like an animal in the wild for a while that was told of Nabonidus as the Dead Sea Scrolls were able to keep straight, uh, but uh, uh, not the author of Daniel. He um, thinks that uh, that a character named Darius the Mede uh, conquered Babylon and that uh, the uh, the Medes and the Persians did, but he's got the, the details mixed up. And... Uh, we we have no record of a Darius the Mede. He seems to be confusing uh, Darius the Persian emperor uh, with uh, with the Medes who uh, were. Uh, oh, I'm beginning to forget the details myself. Good thing I'm not writing the Book of Daniel. Um, but uh, there are, now I do not know Hebrew, so I can only report third hand that apparently the. Um, the Hebrew of the book of Daniel appears to be a later version of it than, than like Exodus or Isaiah or whatever. But again, I, that's hearsay on my part. But also the, the Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, parts of Daniel are in Aramaic, have uh, Persian and Greek loan words in it, which of course implies later interaction with the Hellenistic kingdoms and all that. 
uh, let's see, Daniel himself uh, is uh, attested as a much older, really mythic figure, a, a great wise judge. Uh, Ezekiel mentions Daniel along with uh, Job and Noah. Uh, whereas here we have Daniel as a young man at the beginning of the Babylonian exile. Uh, and so it, it's just a mess in, in that sense. Of course, this doesn't matter because that's not the point of the story, right? Just like in Jonah, the point of the story is not, could a man be swallowed by a fish? No, that's, that's not the point of the book of Jonah. Uh, and uh, the book of Jonah is really saying whether you like it or not, God loves all nations and wants all to be saved anyway um so why what is the point of of uh daniel well it it is as i've just said the encouragement of diaspora jewish youth to stick with their faith but then in the second half of the book we've got all of these visions that uh that uh, daniel has and he uh is pretty obviously quote predicting what is happening in the actual writer's own day that is in uh, 165 bce i mean you can date it that specifically because because he's talking in in like generic allegorical terms of oh, the king of the north the king of the south this and that they'll cause sacrifice to cease well if you compare it with Josephus's flat-out literal description of the history, it's just painfully obvious he's talking about the rebellion of the Hasmoneans, Judas Maccabeus and his brethren, against the Seleucid Syrian Empire. Uh, the uh, the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid emperor who tried to stamp out Judaism and the Torah. And uh, the anointed one who was cut off is the high priest Onias III, who was assassinated and, and so forth. Uh, the the troop movements, I mean, it's it fits like a glove with the history of those events right up until the expulsion of the Syrians, uh, because it says once that happens, and it must have been, you know, very clear, it was just on the, the verge of it happening, then uh, the kingdom of God will dawn and the, the, the son of man, etc. Uh, that, like dating all apocalypses, you, you date them by where they veer off the historical track. Uh, and so it becomes just patently obvious that Daniel was written on the eve of the victory of the Hasmoneans against the Seleucids, uh, though no later, and that places it in 165 B.C., B.C.E. And uh, let me just remind you, in case you've been asleep, uh, B.C., traditionally before Christ, but uh, it's kind of uh, rude to hold everybody to a theologically defined uh, terminology. So now we say B.C.E., before the Common Era, it's too much to ask people to stop numbering them that way, but at least, you know, this is a little more uh, neutral. Before Judaism and Christianity shared the stage, in other words, the common era. And so instead of A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, uh, we now speak of C.E., the common era. So anyhow, um, 
yeah, there, there's loads of, of reasons that just rule out the, uh, the, the narrative frame, uh, which is, is careless. It's sort of like in the book of Judith, where it says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Assyria or something. No, he wasn't. Anybody should have known that and probably did. Maybe it's a wink to the reader. Same thing here. So, uh, Okay, now, now uh, Tim Curran. Sorry about that, Tim. I heard you mention recently you released a new short book about Buddhism, uh, Buddhist thought in the New Testament. What is the name of the new book again? Uh, that's uh, Biblical Buddhism, Tales and Talks of St. Ayatasaf. That's, uh, uh, that's available from, from me. Um, a new edition already is in the works, but uh, this is available for, uh, I guess, 15 bucks, which includes the postage. I'm sorry, that's a bit steep for the, the small book, but there's like a a whole bunch of little um, vignettes and stuff. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, you could PayPal me the bucks. It's just my email, criticus, C R I T I C U S, uh, at AOL.com. And um, give me your, uh, your mailing address and I'll send you one. I think you'd like it. it represents 20 years of, of work. Okay, um, it got me thinking, is there any textual evidence anywhere that Matthew's birth narrative with the Oriental kings paying respect to the infant Jesus was a subtle attempt at recognizing the Alexandrian Buddhist influence on new Christianity? It's so clear to me that Buddhism and strands of early Gnostic poetry go hand in hand, but it seems so difficult to demonstrate in any convincing hermeneutical way. Could you elaborate without giving too much of the content of your new book away? What saith the Bible geek. Well, uh, Tim, uh, actually, the book doesn't go into that. It's just based on the astonishing fact that uh, the medieval Catholic Church accidentally canonized the Buddha as a saint. Uh, they heard the story of the Great Renunciation, where Prince Siddhartha um, uh, renounced his uh, royal wealth and became a monk to seek salvation and wind up being enlightened. And uh, when he was enlightened, he was the Buddha, the enlightened one. Up until that point, he was called the Bodhisattva, uh, the enlightenment being, but implying, uh, denoting uh, someone on the way to becoming a Buddha. Well, Bodhisattva, this story was immensely popular in ancient uh, Eurasia and medieval evil do. Uh, there were various like Barlam and Iodasaf and various versions of this. And uh, the title Bodhisattva got garbled into uh, Joasaf and, and Iodasaf and so forth until uh, European readers did not understand that this was about the Buddha and they thought the guy was a European prince who became a Christian monk. And uh, so they canonized him. In those days, they didn't really care that much about evidence as they do now. Uh, and um, so here you had Prince Siddhartha becoming a Catholic saint. They just didn't realize who they were canonizing, but it was the hero of his story, and that hero was Gautama Buddha. And so my uh, imagination got going, 
Suppose this was, uh, this really reflected historical fact. Suppose you had some kind of a hybrid Buddhist Christian saint. Uh, what would he have taught? And so I decided to make up these, uh, stories where, uh, Saint Ayadasaf is a, uh, some kind of Tibetan Buddhist, uh, abbot, uh, and he has occasion to, to give these talks to his monks and he, does this and that and and in every case the goal was to show how you could use new testament scripture to illustrate buddhist theology and mysticism and it was not that tough now one reason for this i mean it could just be coincidence but Though I do not get into this in this book, there is this body of study done by Christian Lindner in Denmark and uh, Michael Lockwood uh, and uh, various others that suggests that, yeah, Buddhism was available in Alexandria. The Buddhist missionaries had been sent out by King Asoka in the second century BCE, and they were in Syria, they were in Egypt before the Christian period, and uh, that might be where you got the therapeutai, as Philo calls them, this bunch of celibate monks in in uh, in Egypt, uh, who he just thought were the greatest, uh, who had allegorical interpretations of scripture and so on and so on. He talks about them a good bit. Uh, I mean, there was no monasticism in Judaism beforehand, but suddenly what do we have at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls monastic community? Uh, could that be? Uh, where did it come from? Well, Buddhism is probably the, the only candidate for the origin of it. Uh, and and uh, what, what Lintner does is to show not just ethical parallels between Buddhist scripture and the New Testament. I mean, that wouldn't necessarily imply dependence, right? Uh, You can find moral precepts the same in all religions, even when there couldn't have been a connection, right? I mean, it's just faced with the same issues. The human mind comes up with the same bunch of alternatives, right? But he finds all sorts of stories uh, that are so strikingly similar uh, to New Testament stories that you've really got to wonder. I mean, we knew of a couple of them. Uh, the, the sage Asita hears that uh, the, the the Bodhisattva long predicted has been a, has been born, and, and in fact, it's a bunch of gods who appear in the sky to alert him to this, and he goes to the the um, uh, the court of, uh, oh boy, what's his name? The, the father of Gautama. Eh, what the heck? Uh, and, uh, sees the infant and, and weeps that he will not, he's an old man and he weeps that he will not be alive, alive long enough to see, uh, the Buddha enlightened and embarking on his sacred mission. Boy, is that similar to in Luke chapter 2, when Simeon, the aged prophet in Jerusalem, learns of the birth of the Messiah and comes and takes him in his arms and and uh, and weeps uh, in contentment. He says, ah, as you promised, you've allowed me to see your salvation. 
boy, that is pretty darn close. Or how about the story uh, of the woman at the well? Uh, the disciples are going off into the town to get some groceries, and um, Jesus is there at Jacob's well, and a Samaritan woman comes out with a bucket to get a, get some water, and Jesus says, uh, would you give me a drink, lady? And he says, what? You're asking me for a drink? I can't believe it. I, I, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. And John comments, well, this is because Jews and Samaritans will not use the same dishes. They hated each other generally. Uh, and Jesus uh, says, listen, if you knew uh, who it is that is talking to you, you would ask him and he would give you the, the water of uh, eternal life. And he's, oh, oh, really? Uh, Etc. And, and obviously she doesn't understand it and they keep talking. Well, there is a Buddhist story in which Ananda uh, the favorite disciple of the Simon Peter figure of Buddhism. He stops at a well, tired. Uh, a woman uh, comes up to draw water from the well, and he says, my sister, would you give me a drink? And she says, what? Uh, look, uh, you, you and I are of different castes. I can't possibly uh, do that. And he says, uh, my sister, I didn't ask you what caste you belong to. I just asked you for a drink of water. And uh, this just totally flabbergasts her, and she falls in love with uh, with Ananda. And the Buddha says, well, you haven't really fallen in love with him. It's really the, the revelation he brought you and so forth. So the stories end differently, but boy, oh boy, does the, the uh, beginning sound very similar. And Bultmann and others have recognized for a long time that this could well simply have been borrowed from Buddhism. Uh, and there's, uh, but but the, what Christian Lintner shows is there's a truckload of this stuff. And uh, it is so eerie that you begin to wonder, as he argues, I mean, he's not wondering anymore. He's, he's uh, convinced that Christianity started as a kind of Jewish Buddhism, and uh, did they change all the names to protect the, to protect the innocent? Well, not really. Uh, Simon Peter seems to be, he says, a kind of a. I mean, there there were such names. I mean, right? They didn't make up the name completely, but why is he called Simon Peter? Well, not because there was actually a guy named that, but uh, this character. Fits well not only Ananda but another close disciple Sariputra, which becomes uh, Simon Peter. Uh, there's uh, and Jesus, of course, was the Buddha. There's even a crucifixion account. Uh, my uh, late friend and colleague Acharya S pointed this out to me. That's where I first heard about it. Uh, and uh, there's uh, just uh, where uh, an ancestor of Gautama is falsely. Uh, condemned, convicted, and crucified, and so on. In my uh, holy fable, I refer to this astonishing story of, of from that Buddhist uh, drama that would explain the puzzling reference to um, Alexander and Rufus, the sons of Simon of, of uh, Cyrene, who carries the cross. And, and there's loads of them. And he also shows that though we may think numerology is nonsense, I mean, that's kind of my assumption, though what do I know? Um, the ancients sure didn't think so. And uh, so it, it, we may be tempted to just 
sneer at this kind of gematria stuff where they calculate the number values, but that's probably a bit too hasty because the ancients certainly did believe this, and they not only read texts this way, but apparently wrote them that way too, in code. I mean, after all, in the book of Revelation, his number is 666. Let him who has... uh, understanding, calculate the number of the beast. So they did that, and he shows that phrase after phrase in the Gospels uh, can be uh, calculated that way, and uh, that they wind up Buddhist. And uh, it's, it's not a crazy view. It just sounds crazy to most people because it's so astonishing. I mean, this is never what we heard. Now, I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, I I don't know Sanskrit, as as he certainly does. But I have to admit, it really causes me to think. I got to hold the door open on that one. Uh, Fascinating. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot to that. Now, I would suggest if you want to pursue that, you look up uh, Michael Lockwood as editor And he's got a couple of compilations of uh, relevant materials, including a whole lot of Lintner stuff. And it's kind of a long title, I can't quite remember, but look up Michael Lockwood, and and you'll you'll see this this stuff. Uh, That would really go into this theory. It's uh, mind-blowing. The older I get, you know, the old Socratic thing, the, the... more you realize how little you know. Mm, let's see. Okay, well, one more, and then I'll get off here. Brandon, Tennessee. I agree with you that Christ started as a revelatory figure, you know, just known in visions, then became historicized. If I understand your interviews on YouTube correctly... You think that if the Jesus myth becomes mainstream, Christianity can survive. Dr. Richard Carrier shares this view, I believe. However, David Fitzgerald says that the Jesus myth is kryptonite to Christianity. I agree with Mr. Fitzgerald. Wise thing to do. He's a brilliant guy. Um, uh, when you think about it, Christianity could not survive a revelatory Christ of the days before scientific method was the norm. They had to invent a historical Jesus to keep the religion going. There are no angel-based religions to come out of the Middle East or North Africa. I think a revelatory Christ would collapse today in the same way that it did 2,000 years ago. Thoughts? Uh, You may well be right, and uh, Dave may well be right. What I claim is that that logically it wouldn't necessarily kill uh, Christianity uh, because you you do have parallels, again, with Buddhism. Some types of Buddhism would admit that uh, the Buddha was not a historical figure, though even there that's a minority. Uh, I remember seeing uh, the an episode of the Long Search uh, series of uh, documentaries on the world religions. Pretty fascinating, and uh, Ronald Ayer, the journalist who hosted the thing, is talking to a Zen abbot in Japan, and says, "Now I've talked to different kinds of Buddhists and." Uh, 
Some of them believe he was a historical sage, others that he wasn't. Uh, what's the deal? And the, the uh, abbot says, for those who need him to exist, he exists. But for those who don't, he doesn't. I, I don't think there would be a problem. I mean, you you could keep almost the whole darn thing going if you said number one. I mean, suppose you said God did send Jesus to be crucified in the heavenly realms by the principalities and powers. He never came to earth, but what happened was revealed to us on earth. I mean, what the heck? Uh, it's faith anyway, right? I mean, you, you weren't there even if you believed he literally did all this stuff on earth. If this is what you believed happened, what would be the difference if you taught that this was the atoning sacrifice? Well, some people would say, yeah, but it had to be in the flesh. Well, who says? Uh, I, I don't say you, you would have to adjust the theology, uh, but I, I don't think that. I mean, people do that all the time in these religions, like the Seventh-day Adventists. Okay, Jesus is coming back in 1843 or whatever it was. He doesn't. And then they say, oh, uh, well, I guess we had it wrong. He did carry out the investigative judgment in heaven. Yeah, that's the ticket. The Jehovah's Witnesses, 1914, Jesus is coming back. The judge to, to set up his rule on earth. The date passes. Oh, well, uh, it did happen. We just had the location wrong. He's reigning from heaven now. What the heck? They, they believed it. They found it viable. Why couldn't you do the same thing? Oh, we thought it happened on earth, but well, what do you know? It happened in heaven. Uh, uh, what about these stories of Jesus doing stuff on earth? Well, they're parables. I mean, there, there are stories Jesus tells, and there are stories told about Jesus. Why can't they both be parables? I mean, it's just the fact that it's alien and strange to people that makes it seem not viable. Okay, now, if you said that, uh, well, let me leave that part of my answer there and say, would this work? Suppose, I think theoretically, there wouldn't be much of a jog in the road, right? But would people accept that? Uh, it is so outrageous that uh, you, Dave might well be right that people just wouldn't buy it. It would be too different from, from what they've always been told. And they'd say, okay, I guess it's just a big hoax. But I don't know. Because in, like in these other cases with the Adventists and the Witnesses and all that, it meant so much to them that uh, the easier thing to do was to make a radical reinterpretation. Uh, and maybe the cognitive dissonance reduction would be the same thing. If you could show to people's satisfaction Jesus hadn't lived on earth, they'd be very reluctant to just not be Christians anymore. I think I'll join the local chapter of American Atheists. I don't know. You know, I don't see. I'll just take the kids to Atheist Sunday School. I can well imagine that plenty of people would simply, you know, make this revision. I mean, what are they losing? Were they there when Jesus was on earth for 
multiplying fish for people to eat? No. Uh, if it's just a story to them anyway, really. The, they also happen to believe it happened, and they believe it's important to believe that it happened because they've been told that. But if these were the stakes, Christianity is bunk or Christianity is uh, symbolic or, or is simply dealing with things that really happened but beyond uh, the senses in heaven— I, I think they might be willing to make the adjustment, but who knows? Because it's not a simple matter, right? You wouldn't simply be changing an, a, a, a pet opinion. Uh, you, it would be a you know major, major thing, and the more major it would be, the uh, the uh, greater the likelihood they wouldn't dump it. So I don't really know. I can easily see it going either way, but of course. Uh, it's not going to go either way because the urgency of cognitive dissonance reduction would uh, manifest itself the way it already does, by simply being in denial. No evidence could convince the believer or, or debunk it. James Barr, in his great book, Fundamentalism, said, just as it is customary to enter fundamentalism by an emotional experience, it takes another one to get you out of it. And it's not really uh, evidence and argument, though some people claim that it is, but they're just kidding. Okay, and that's it for today's Bible Geek, uh, and I'm glad you're joining me on it, and I'll uh, be back with you again soon on another exciting episode of the Bible Geek. By the way, check out my uh, Patreon, become a Patreon patron, and uh, I can certainly use the bucks. It certainly facilitates my uh, being able to do the work I do. So thank you for your interest. Bye-bye. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.